when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Westminster continues to swelter in a heat wave, and the political heat around the Tory leadership contest shows no signs of abating. Rishi Sunak accused Liz Truss of being indifferent to the poor, alleging that her proposed tax cuts aren't going to do much to help them over the winter as energy bills head towards £4,000. The only way to help them is with direct support because tax cuts alone are not much good if you're a pensioner who's not earning any extra money. They're not much good if you're working hard on the national living wage because Liz's tax cut is worth about a quid a week for that person. It's worth zero for a pensioner. That's not right. Liz Truss, being grilled at her hustings in Darlington by Talk TV's Tom Newton dunn was dismissive of Sunak's high taxes and said that tax cuts were her first port of call when it came to the cost of living crisis. What I think is completely wrong is the idea that we take huge swathes of people's money, hard-working people, and then give it back to them and then, it, then claim it's a giveaway and it's our money. That is completely wrong. That's completely wrong, Tom, and I don't believe in it. For the likes of Gordon Brown, the former Labour Prime Minister, who wants an emergency summit between Boris Johnson, Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, neither candidate is being honest about what lies ahead or gripping the issue. Martin Lewis, the money-saving guru, was even angrier in an interview with the BBC. This is a national crisis on the scale that we saw in the pandemic. We are currently in that position where we are watching the beds in European hospitals and doing nothing about it and allowing people go to sporting events. And do not negate the mental health damage that is being done to people in panic now across the nation. And the political theater of allowing the 26th of August to come when we get the price cap announcement with nothing firm in place is incredibly damaging. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to Westminster from the Financial Times with me, George Parker, standing in for Seb, who's down in Agatha Christie country in South Devon, writing a real life political whodunit about the downfall of Boris Johnson. Over the summer weeks, we'll be focusing on the Tory leadership race with slightly shorter episodes than usual, bringing you the only story in town. With me are Chris Giles, our economics editor, to look at the numbers behind the fight to become PM, and political correspondent Jasmine cameron Shileshi, who's been following the twists and turns of the campaign. Thank you both for joining the pod. Now, Chris, Liz Truss says she'll do what she can to help but she clearly favours tax cuts. What's the problem with tax cuts as a way of getting the country through this crisis? Well, it's pretty simple. And, and Rishi Sunak essentially had it right in the clip you've just played that the people who are hardest hit by energy prices, who where energy is the biggest share of their household budgets, are also people who don't pay a lot of tax. So if you cut their tax by a little bit, because taxes are only going to be cut by a little bit, even under the Liz Trust plans... Uh, they don't benefit. And they have the huge bills, which were just about a year ago, about £1,000 for the average household, and projected to go up to £4,000. That's a four times increase. And a £3,000 increase in bill 
for someone on very low earnings or on no earnings is something they simply can't afford. At some point, benefit system will catch up, but that's not there yet. So in the meantime, tax cuts, I think Rishi Sunak said, don't, don't touch the sides, but they're not well targeted and they give money to people who uh, are better off in the income distribution, including all of us around this table. And we'll say thank you very much. And it will help us with our energy bills, which are going up by a lot of money as well. But we're not the ones who are the hardest hit by this crisis. What other tax cuts could she be talking about? Because she's talked about um, reversing the national insurance rate increase that Rishi Sunak had announced. What else could she do that could help? Well, on tax, on sort of direct taxes, so income tax, national insurance, not very much because they all suffer from the problem that uh, poorest people don't pay. So if you're earning up to well, over £10,000, £12,000, you don't pay any income tax at all. Uh, so the taxes that you could cut, which would help poorer people, are VAT. But remember that richer people spend much more than poor people, so they get a bigger benefit, and poor people spend more on food and energy, which have lower VAT rates, uh, close to zero on much of food, and 5% on energy. So cutting those actually, uh, again, if you just cut VAT generally, uh, that gives more money to richer people than poor people. So tax cuts really is not a way to target help to where the, the energy price problems are. So in the end, you come back to what Liz Truss, in her interview with us, called handouts. Yeah, handouts, social security, welfare, whatever you want to call it, these are payments which are designed to give money to the people who have the least amount already. And those that is the way that we in the UK design our system so that we can redistribute money from richer people, richer households, to poorer households. And so if you want to help poorer households, the easy and quick way of doing it is through the benefit system. So, Jasmine, the big theme of this week, partly flowing from Liz Truss's interview with the FT, where she said she favoured tax cuts over handouts, is whether the Foreign Secretary is prepared to help the poorest in society. Do you detect a shift in tone from her this week? Yeah, I think there's definitely been a shift in tone, but I think there's been an overall tone shift when it comes to the leadership debate in general, because I think a couple of weeks ago, there was a real sense that the candidates were very much divorced from reality. They were talking about these ideological battles about when it comes to tax. But actually, with the announcement that energy bills could hit more than four grand next year, I think they've all been brought back down to earth a little bit. And I do think, despite the fact that we see both candidates talking about the cost of living crisis more, it still feels as though there's a bit of a political vacuum. And it's interesting that it's being filled by the likes of Gordon Brown or campaigners like Martin Lewis, who are coming out with authoritative, empathetic statements on this issue. But I think just turning back to trust, I mean, her argument that tax cuts alone would be enough to help households was quite a flimsy one to begin with. And it's obviously fallen apart. And I think there was a danger that she came across as quite ideological and too rigid in the face of what are expected to be quite astronomical rises in energy prices. And so I think it is an inevitable shift in tone. And I do think what's been quite striking this week is that we've gone back to both of the um, candidates and their supporters being increasingly bitter when it comes to what's happening with the economy. So we saw Dominic Raab this week writing in The Times, arguing that Liz's tax cuts would be electoral suicide. And that's quite punchy language. <laughs> to put it mildly. And, but I think it reflects the fact that I think there was an assumption that the energy price spike would be perhaps a short-term blip 
And now there's a real realisation that actually we're going to have rising food prices, fuel prices and inflation for a long, long time. And actually that could have a huge electoral impact come 2024. And I think we're seeing growing panic from both Truss and the Sunak side about what happens when the next PM's elected in September and the, there's a public backlash against the government because the economy is is in a tailspin. I know the, the sort of Sunak campaign strategy seems to me to be slightly... They seem to be sort of muddying the waters themselves here, don't they? Because they, Richard Sunak started the campaign by saying Liz Truss was being irresponsible by promising these tax cuts, which he claimed would have to be funded by borrowing. This would be inflationary. And now Richie Sunak is attacking Liz Truss from the other side and saying we need to spend more money to help people through this crisis, possibly through efficiency savings, our favourite friend, government efficiency savings, or more likely from more borrowing. I mean, that might make sense and it might be, as Chris was saying, be the way to help people through this crisis. But from a political strategy point of view, it's quite confusing, isn't it? Yeah, I think he's been quite inconsistent because at the beginning of the race, there was a clear dividing line between what he was saying and what Truss was saying about the economy. And he pitched himself as the sensible grown-up in the room. He pushed back against what he called fairy tale economics. There was a real sense that as a, you know, from a public perspective and from amongst Tory memberships, you knew what either candidate stood for. And now he's sort of shifted and he's almost returned to his stance as the coronavirus chancellor where he's giving out stuff and he's in favour of quite big state intervention, whether it's increased quote-unquote handouts, as Trust called them, or whether it's slashing VAT on domestic fuel. And so I think he has blurred the lines a bit. And it's interesting, as I've been speaking to Tory members over the past few days and weeks, there's been a real sense that I think people don't really like the inconsistency, whether it's him on the economy or whether it's when he's trying to lean into the anti-woke stuff or immigration stuff, it feels quite false. And I think the point where he's behind in the polls and he needs to show that he is trusted and credible, it's not a great look to be flip-flopping, especially when it comes to economic policy, because he's not really clarified why his policy suddenly doesn't result in more inflation and more borrowing, but trusts does. And there is that contradiction that he hasn't quite solved. I mean, anyone who starts resorting to efficiencies when he was chancellor and could have got rid of those efficiencies, why didn't he? I mean, just raises that question immediately. So that that really is a big black mark, uh, I think. It's a magic money tree. Now, Chris, Liz Truss has suggested that Rishi Sunak and the Treasury represent a stale orthodoxy. But she's also taken aim at the Bank of England over the last couple of weeks, both over its inflation-fighting record and its mandate, but also on its record on regulating the City of London. There's a big bust-up coming in, regardless of who wins, actually, whether it's Truss or Sunak, with the Governor of the Bank of England, Andrew Bailey. Can you explain what's going on? Well, I think part of it is sort of finding a nice, convenient scapegoat. And that, and the Bank of England, who can't really argue back, although Andrew Bailey has been sort of half-trying to a little bit, uh, is quite a good scapegoat because they have a mandate, or they have a target, the government has set them a target to have inflation at 2% at all times, and that's what it says in the letter, uh, and it's going to rise, as the bank predicted uh, a few days ago, to well over into double digits and maybe up to 13% come the early part of next year. That is nowhere near 2%. It's very uncomfortable for the bank. The bank says it hasn't made any mistakes. I think that was made in some ways unwise because clearly some people internally think they have made some mistakes, although not very large ones. Um, but it does mean that being a bit of the whipping boy for the new Prime Minister will make it very uncomfortable for the bank. And at the moment, the tactic that the bank is using is saying it's fine. We don't mind at all 
if you review our mandate. That is entirely the government's right to do. The government sets our mandate and it's for government to review it. But then just set us a target and then set, then let us go away and meet it or try to meet it. What they get very cross about, and I think we're seeing increasing uh, annoyance from the bank, we've seen it in the regulatory sphere just uh, late this week, is that they are very worried that the government's not only setting them a target, but then interfering in their attempts to meet that target so that they want to call in regulatory powers and if they don't quite like the way the bank is regulating the financial sector, they'll overrule the bank. Mm. which really just gets rid of the independence to actually meet the government's targets in regulation. And the worry is that on monetary policy, not only will they give them a 2% inflation target, but then if things go wrong, they'll say, well, you're not doing this right, we need to step in. Which is, in, in fact... In law, that is always the power the Chancellor has. Mm. It's a bit of a nuclear button and no Chancellor's never even got close to pressing it. And of course the danger is you, if you risk undermining the Bank of England, whether it's on its inflation mandate or indeed on its regulatory mandate, there's a danger you create market instability at a very precarious time. Yeah, and if people think that actually the independence isn't worth the paper it's written on, that if push comes to shove, if times get difficult, the government's just going to go in and do something stupid let's say, like Turkey, where we've got a good example of that (laughs) at the moment, then you would worry about putting a lot of money into the UK and we might get a risk premium, like it might become more expensive for the UK government to borrow again, which is exactly what happened before Bank of England independence, and it was the big benefit from independence when it was announced in 1997. So, Jasmine, this trust also wants to try and source out the dysfunctional relationship between number 10, number 11 Downing Street, which... um, everyone would agree, has become toxic between Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak in recent times, almost as bad as the old TBGBs that Chris and I remember so well back in the days of (laughs) New Labour. And she wants to strengthen the economic muscle in Number 10 and sort of be calling the shots from Number 10 if she becomes Prime Minister. That makes good sense, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think she's right in saying a reset is needed because the relationship between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson had become particularly acrimonious. If we think back to the Partygate scandal, Rishi Sunak wasn't the most enthusiastic supporter of Johnson when he was asked about it on the broadcast rounds. And I remember that moment when I think there was a press conference and it was around the time when Rishi Sunak's wife was embroiled in the non-dom scandal and Johnson had to deny that number 10 was briefing against number 11 quite publicly um, on what was supposed to be a a, a press conference about foreign policy. So it's clear that there were a lot of tensions in the past administration. And I think especially as we head towards the autumn and there are going to be increasing bills, there's going to be a cost of living crisis. It's not a great look for number 10 and number 11 to be arguing amongst themselves. And I think just for a sort of public image perspective, it's good if there is is a public sense of unity. But I do think a lot of a lot of it will depend on if it is trust, for example, who she appoints as chancellor and what their um, personality is like and what their political style is like. And I do think in all these roles, I'm sure these individuals come into the job with these high expectations and aspirations about what they will and won't do. But when you're facing an economic crisis, suddenly that all goes out the window. And I think, yes, you might go in there with good intentions, but we have no idea what the next few months will really look like and what that will mean for the relationship between number 10 and number 11. That's, of course, if Liz Truss becomes Prime Minister, we should caveat that by saying that because, of course, there's a two-horse race going on. And everyone seems to think that that, Kwasi Kwarteng, currently the business secretary, will become Liz Truss's Chancellor if she becomes Prime Minister. And everybody talks about that relationship between George Osborne and 
David Cameron in the coalition years, where they were two friends. They seemed to make the relationship work. And it was a very rare example, Chris, wasn't it, of the Prime Minister and the Chancellor actually having a decent working relationship, which lasted for six years. Exactly. And that was sort of extraordinary, because when you think about it with Gordon Brown, when he became Prime Minister... He had Alistair Darling mm. as a chancellor. They got on. They were good friends at the start. But boy, within a year... Not, not for a couple of, couple of months. <laughs> within a year, it was nothing like that at all. And we've seen uh, we've seen it so often. Theresa May and Philip Hammond fell out to the point when in the 2017 election, she basically said she was going to sack him, but then she did so badly she couldn't. These things mm. happen. It, it, it is sort of structural that as chancellor, you feel you have to protect the coffers. And yeah. quite often you're saying no. Yeah. Quite often the big job of the Treasury, and people complain about it all the time, but it's actually quite a valuable job, is to is to, is to to stamp on stupid ideas that emerge in government, and quite often for number 10. Mm. Uh, and that then creates tensions. Uh, because the reason the Treasury can stamp on them is because they've got the money. They hold the purse strings. And then they can say, well... You can do that, but you've got to find some money from somewhere else in your budget if you want to do this really stupid thing. Yeah. And that is a classic Treasury. And of course, it shows how difficult it is to, to run as a Tory leader from the Treasury, doesn't it? Because you've spent so long saying no to a load of things, including things relating to Brexit, of course. It's thrown back in your face when you run for the leadership. Now, Chris, one final question. This trust, we often talk about the comparisons with Margaret Thatcher and some of the iconography that she borrows from the Thatcher years. But do you detect sort of an element of Reaganite Rhetoric, maybe policy from her as well, this idea of borrowing for tax cuts, saying recessions can be avoided, the sunny optimism of Reagan. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's quite interesting because if you think about the early years of the Thatcher period, the 1979 to 1981, or even 1982 period, that was very difficult. The country was in recession, manufacturing industry was basically collapsing in the UK. And the Thatcher response to that was this is tough medicine, it's necessary. And we, in fact, we're going to make it tougher and then we will come out the other side, which was the original, as Jasmine was saying, the original Sunak language in this campaign. And that's very much not the trust language. In, in fact, it's sunny optimism. If there's a recession, it's not necessary. We can cut taxes and we can avoid it. It's not destiny, she was saying. This is something that we don't have to have. We can have all of lots of good things. I think... Whether this is purely campaign rhetoric or things that she will say once in office, I think is still mm. slightly uncertain. But I'm not convinced it is just campaign rhetoric. It might be something she tries, and then that will be a really, as I say, interesting economic experiment. Indeed. Now, Jasmine, the Trust campaign thinks that by this weekend, around half of all the ballot papers could have been returned. Um, what's your assessment of the campaign so far? And do you see any way for Rishi Sunak clawing this back? I mean, I think there is an air of inevitability around trust at the moment. And I think she does have quite broad appeal among party members. She appeals to those who want to be tough on Ukraine because of her record as foreign secretary. She appeals to the Johnson loyalists who are frustrated that there is even a leadership election to begin with. And they see Rishi Sunak as having stabbed Johnson in the back. I think she appeals to those members of the party who feel as though the Conservatives have, have gone away from their traditional economic standpoint when it comes to things like taxes. So there is definitely momentum building and certainly members have been able to vote for at least a couple of days now and a lot of people would have already made up their minds quite quickly. Um, so obviously you don't want to make any you know, dramatic predictions, but it does seem to be an increasing inevitability that she will be the next Prime Minister. I think what is striking is that I'm not entirely clear how the party unifies after September the 5th 
because I think there's been so much mudslinging and it's got so personal. I'm sure there will be a moment of kumbaya where the new leader says we need to come together as a party, but I'm not entirely sure that can happen. I mean, there are still members of the Johnson wing who in the backbenches who are very annoyed with how it's all panned out, who are going to certainly cause trouble. There'll be individuals who are frustrated with the economic direction of the country as we sort of move into autumn. So I feel as though there's a big question mark over the next leader and, and what what they do and how they bring the party back together and actually govern effectively. Oh, you're right. I think party unity is going to be tested in very challenging economic circumstances. So, Chris, with that in mind, I'm going to ask you an economic question. If you were the prime minister, the new prime minister, would you go for a snap election, given what's coming down the track economically? No, because I think people at the moment are very scared about the future. And the future might well look better in 2024 than it does now. And politically, Jasmine, do you think Liz Truss, if she becomes prime minister, would go for a snap election? I don't think she would. I mean, given that she's sitting on quite a large majority and there's no guarantee that a general election would see that majority returned, I think she'd be crazy to. I think her best bet is establishing herself as a leader, establishing her cabinet, and yeah, and just and just really getting to grips with the economic crisis as opposed to thrusting the country into uncertainty and chaos. And I think especially given some of the things that we've heard come out during the leadership debate, I think there's a lot of ammunition for Labour to, to go on and that sometimes, you know, it's. I think the candidates have forgotten that we can all see and hear them. And so when they're criticising each other, we can see that and Labour can see that and it's all going to go on their campaign leaflets. So no, I think she should sit tight and wait till 2024. And of course, in the interview with the FT, she absolutely ruled out having an early election. And uh, I suppose she would be grappling with the same dilemma as Gordon Brown in 2007, where you're wondering about whether to cut and run and risk being the shortest-lived British Prime Minister in history in a very tricky, trivial pursuit question in 10 years' time. Anyway, with that, Jasmine and Chris, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And we also love positive reviews and ratings. Payne's Politics was presented by me, George Parker, and produced by Philippa Goodrich. Sound engineers are Breen Turner and Jan Sigsworth. Seb's back from his alleged holiday next time, and I'm heading for the Shangri-La that is the Port of Dover for a quick break myself. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.